From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. It would likely take six to nine months for a human spacecraft to get to Mars and back. And if anyone is going to stay there to create a human settlement on the Red Planet, they won't arrive with everything they need. Food will need to be grown, and that will require water, which Mars has some of. It will also take plenty of sunlight, which Mars gets with a bit less intensity than Earth. And then there's soil, which Mars has plenty of. But Martian soil isn't the same as Earthen soil. To make things grow on Mars, it will likely be necessary to bring along some of the things that Earthen soil is teeming with. That is to say, insects and microorganisms, both of which are important for nutrient cycling, breaking down plant residues, and stimulating plant growth. So, which bugs should we bring? Well, that's what Emmanuel Mendoza is trying to figure out. And the undergraduate researcher at Texas A&M University thinks he and his collaborators might have found one candidate, the black soldier fly. Mendoza recently presented on the laboratory results of using soldier fly larvae to treat simulated Martian soil at the Entomological Society of America conference, and he's joining us today to talk about what's next. Emmanuel Mendoza, welcome. Hi, I'm happy to be here. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Emmanuel, every teenager's got some strange hobby, but yours was particularly weird. You started to grow or trying to grow radishes in simulated Martian soil when you were in high school? How did that strange activity start? (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely definitely one of my uh, stranger hobbies, and it was something that my my friends have joked about for years uh, on my end. And so whenever I was in middle school, I remember watching The Martian for the first time with Matt Damon, just really, really good science fiction movie. It's generally pretty accurate to all the different aspects of sci-fi that I think I really enjoy seeing. And one thing that really piqued my interest was, you know, even if we're not in a, you know, race for absolute survival, like uh, Mark Watney was in the movie, we're still going to need to grow those crops long-term. And that really piqued my interest. Well, like, okay, what can we actually do with the Martian soil? I started looking into it during my junior year a little bit, and just kind of doing some like passive research and eventually COVID hit and I actually was in a rather fortunate situation where my class, uh, my school, my high school was offering a scientific research and design class through uh, one of our teachers and I proposed this project. I was very interested. I said, okay, I'm going to buy a planting kit. I'm going to use one of the school's kind of lighting kits that they have available and I'm just going to see what happens when we throw a bunch of Martian soil and earth soil and different combinations in my garage. I have no idea what my neighbors thought. I'm sure they thought I was the weird kid on the block. But yes. Oh, yeah. You were the weird kid on the block for sure. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. (laughs) And I grew them in my garage, too. So I'm sure they were like, what is what is what's going on over there? But it was a very interesting, a very interesting experiment. I remember I spent hours counting leaves and watering and just measuring different heights from day to day. And I think one thing to keep in mind is that the scope of this project and even in high school was just so limited. I didn't have the funding for more than I think more than like two kilograms of this Martian regolith. It was kind of expensive to purchase. No, uh, let's actually, let's stop there for a second because I think people might be confused about where a high school kid is getting Martian soil. This is simulated Martian soil, right? Where do you get that from? That's correct. 
That's correct. So uh, the outfit I was purchasing from is called the Martian Garden. It's an outfit in Austin that uses rover and lander data to basically reconstitute Martian soil from earth minerals, which is primarily, you know, iron oxide and a basalt and basically just combining it together into a very similar chemical and physical composition. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, were you successful? Did the radishes grow? They did. They did. Um, they grew not as well as, you know, I would have liked. That's just because of the size of the pot that I had available. Uh, each container was like maybe three or four centimeters in each direction and only a few centimeters deep. And because of that, I didn't really get the big time results that I wanted from radishes. However, I was really interesting to note that, oh, wow, these plants still do grow in Martian regolith, even if they're not growing as well as, you know, I would have expected. Now, are you a radishes guy? I mean, could you tell if they were good or not? I don't recall ever having had a radish when I was a teenager. They were pretty small. They weren't even big enough for the radishes to fully form into an adult form. The reason I actually chose them was because of their very fast growth rate. They were supposed to grow from seed to maturity in about 60 days. And none of them actually achieved that. They were all, even the ones that were in pure soil were still pretty stunted in their growth just because of that size difference. So I'm not sure whether they were delicious or not. And <laughs> given the somewhat toxic nature of the Martian regolith, at least right now, from what we understand from other minerals, I probably wouldn't want to try them. And that's actually, um, just an aside, some interesting work being done by other researchers who are exploring using bacteria to take those harmful chemicals that are currently found in the Martian regolith and taking them out again. How did you wind up in the lab of Jeffrey Tomberlin, who's your sure. advisor and an entomology professor at Texas A&M University? He's been studying black soldier flies since, well, since before you were born. That's right. I think he's been studying them for almost 40 years now, if not over 40 years at this point. Uh, freshman year, I was, I was an aerospace engineering major at Texas A&M, and I was really interested in doing something that wasn't uh, traditional engineering. I was really interested in looking at, okay, what are the other aspects of research I can do? I was already in an aerospace lab. And so it was winter break. I was just looking into other research projects. And one that then that really piqued my interest was Dr. Tomlin and Noah Lemke's uh, research. It was literally titled, Black Soldier Flies Can Feed the World, But We Need More of Them. And that really piqued my interest just because of the fact that this is a novel agricultural technique that I had never heard of before. I started reading and within 15 minutes, I thought, wow, like, this is the solution to the problem I didn't even know existed yet. Uh, and so I emailed Noah, and very quickly I was brought into the lab. I met Dr. Tomlin, and I became really quickly acquainted with the uses of black soldier flies in industry. And I began to think more and more of, okay, how can I tie this back to my aerospace interests, to my you know long-term <laughs> space colonization interests? That um, I guess that, that's what really, really got me interested. Now, let's, let's keep it on Earth for the moment here, because what were Noah and Professor Tomberlin trying to do with the blackfly larvae when they were focused on earthly pursuits? Yeah, so uh, the black soldier fly, as we know it right now, is a really useful insect for breaking down almost any type of organic matter. Think restaurant waste, industrial waste, human waste and like farm waste, and it can turn them back. Obviously, same elements, you're not getting any energy more out than you're getting in. However, they're extremely efficient converters for otherwise waste products to turn them back into lipids and fats that can be used and consumed by animals. Then their frass, which is the excretion of the larvae, uh, can be used to fertilize plants. So immediately on Earth, they have huge practical implications for reducing our impact of our waste and basically decreasing the amount that is directly put into landfills or just never used again. And instead, we're able to reconvert it back into a useful and economical resource. And then 
you come along and you've got this kind of crazy idea that the frass might help alleviate one of the problems or several of the problems that you had when you were trying to grow radishes in the simulated Martian soil. But you're, with all due respect, Emmanuel, you're just a kid, right? You're just an undergraduate and you walk up to these guys and you're like, hey, I've got an idea. How did they take that? Yeah. So uh, initially, I think, uh, especially in entomology, I think that there was a very surprising proposition to Dr. Tarmelin. I think he took it very well. I think he was very interested in the prospect because there were already existing papers establishing that frass was a valuable fertilizer. But I think, I think, like you said, I am just a kid and I didn't really know what I was getting myself into whenever I got into this research. There wasn't a precedent established. And so I definitely had to work up to actually building a proposal uh, developing research. And I think that was really useful as an undergraduate is just actually get, developing the skills that I would need for further research just in general, I needed to develop to pursue this kind of outlandish idea uh, and turn it into reality. And part of the idea here is that these larvae can be used to fertilize the Martian soil. Take me through that a little bit. How? What is the Martian soil lacking and what do the larvae contribute? Of course. So, Martian regolith itself is lacking, obviously, organic matter um, because there's nothing there's nothing there that's living as far as we're As far aware. as we know, right? <laughs> as far as we know, that's right. Uh, and the natural biota just in general, so microorganisms. But then they, the regolith is also lacking macronutrients that contain nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and sulfur. However, what FRAS does is it's the black soldier fly larval excretion. So basically, their poop hang is... As someone, a lot of people have, I've told me like, just, just call it poop. Just call um, it poop. It's a, yeah, that's that's, a, that's right. how we talk, right? It's just poop. That's right. And so, just like conventional poop that we use from other species, we can use this in the Martian soil. And unlike other species, like think cow or guano or other fertilizers, it's typically non-bacterial because the black soldier fly is a non-bacterial vector carrying insect. From what I understand, you can they're like E. coli and some other pathogens that typically affect humans, those don't get passed along to the larvae and that doesn't get passed along to the poop. So it can be extremely useful because you have waste that might have, you know, harmful bacteria and harmful pathogens and harmful fungi, and that's not getting passed along. And instead you're converting it to an actual usable form, which then can be added to Martian regolith, which is what I did in my experiment. And you can grow plants if you combine it and you basically make a, a pseudo soil from regolith and frass. And one of the advantages here over, say, cows or bats is that, you know, cows are huge. That's going to be hard to take with us on a spacecraft flying to Mars. Bats, um, maybe a little smaller, but also still pretty large organisms. And they got to fly around. I don't know how that's going to work in zero G. But these little guys, these little larvae, well, describe these. What does a black soldier fly and a black soldier fly larva look like? Yeah, so black soldier flies look like smaller wasps. They're entirely black in color. Um, in the lab setting, they're very friendly. And I mean that in an in insect sense of the word friendly. <laughs> they don't bite. They're non-pest. They don't really fly around. If they're in their cage, they typically just kind of fly around their cage and don't really cause any problems. The reason they're called soldier flies is because their shoulders are, um, I believe they have these like, not gross, but they have basically a shoulder pads <laughs> like they think the 80s. Uh, and so people <laughs> kind of thought of that as like an armor of types whenever they were naming them. And that's black soldier flies. As far as I'm aware, I think that's the etymology of the entomological world. And then the, the larvae themselves, they do look like kind of like grubs or maggots. 
And they exhibit some really interesting feeding behavior that actually allows us to build structures that can self-harvest as they grow older. But yeah, they kind of look like flatter uh, maggots. But unlike maggots, they don't really smell like anything bad. And they're really interesting and they're quite warm because they all grow together in this big mass uh, to kind of have communal a body heat, which I think is really fascinating. As it's sort of adorable. They're it all, is. It they're is. all it's like in a big cuddle puddle. Exactly. Exactly. They're all in a big cuddle puddle eating for months on, or a couple months on end. <laughs> okay. And then part of this idea is that these adorable little larvae could also be a food source for astronauts. They're, I assume, packed with protein. Are they tasty? Have you tried them? I have not. However, I, there's a running joke in the lab about uh, some of us undergrads eating some of the insects. However, yes, uh, the palatability... It's better than ramen, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> better than college ramen, for sure. Um, but yeah, they are packed with proteins and lipids and, and fats. And even if astronauts themselves aren't comfortable eating insects, I understand there's definitely a cultural bias against eating insects in a in a conventional westernized diet, which I, I, I can understand the reasoning behind kind of, you know, that's not what we grow up with. And even if astronauts aren't typically comfortable eating that food source, you can feed these larvae to fish or poultry, which people are typically much more comfortable eating. And that's well established in a lot of papers I've read where they've been able to substitute fish feed or chicken feed for larvae, and they've consumed them and still grown. Uh, that is the fish and chicken have still grown really well. And, you know, then astronauts can eat those. And those are also relatively small animals. So let's go through the whole cycle here. So an astronaut eats some food, has some food waste. That goes into a container for these black soldier fly larvae. Take me through the process from there. Yeah, for sure. So from the larval stage, the larvae will eat a lot of that waste. The larvae will themselves will grow. As they grow, we can take them out at certain instars as they get older and older. And those larvae can be then fed to uh, fish or you know, chicken. And then the frass, their actual waste, that can still be used. And that waste, black soldier fly larval waste, the frass, the poop, that is, can be then fed to plants. Then you have your two outputs. You have your plants that are growing, and you have your fish and your poultry that are growing. Both of those, humans can eat. Humans then have their excretion, their waste, and the cycle starts again. Wow. Okay, so talk to me now about presenting at the Entomological Society Conference most of the people presenting there are graduate students or PhDs. You are still working on your bachelor's degree. Was it intimidating? I definitely think that it was intimidating for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, luckily, the present, the competition, the smaller competition I was presenting at within the Greater Entomological Society of America meeting was an undergraduate competition. But even then, just sitting in on other undergraduate presentations and listening to some of the work being done was really fascinating. I was very impressed by the caliber of some of the uh, young men and women around the, around the country just doing exceptional work and also completing an undergrad. I think the part that definitely kind of got me out of my initial comfort zone was like, wow, I'm like the only engineer here. Uh, a lot of these people are scientists and and dedicated researchers. And it's, it's a very interesting dynamic just to experience this very scientific world when I'm very accustomed to my equations and my formula sheets and my, my <laughs> rocket engines and all that good stuff. And then national public radio came calling and then the New York Times and, hey, not for nothing, Utah public radio. Um, so everybody's <laughs> really interested. Why are you laughing? Everybody's really interested in this. Did you suspect that would happen? 
I'm la- I'm laughing because of a, like a joke I made with one of my friends a couple weeks ago where I, I was like, yeah, this was kind of like my hobby research. And they were very surprised that my hobby in my off time would be additional research. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I didn't really expect any, any like not to anything to come out of this, but I was definitely uh, in this for more of a personal fulfillment and just an interest for, for plant growth and, and kind of these systems in general is definitely of a, a passion project. So all of this I'm very excited about just because highlighting this work really shows other people that multidisciplinary work is really useful. It can really have a lot of uh, really useful benefits to the world. Uh, it really shows that like, oh, if you're an undergraduate, you don't have to wait until you're a grad student or you're a professional to start pursuing meaningful interests. And I think that's what I really want to highlight. I really want to highlight both the technology uh, and its future for you know sustainable agriculture, but also just showing other people in the world that, hey, if you want to pursue an interest like go for it. You know, it, it might be hard. It might take years, which it definitely I've like looked back as a, wow, this has been kind of a project like four or five years in the making, but it's been just an amazing process so far. So you have gotten quite a bit of attention around this project in national media. You presented at this conference. I got to figure your parents are like super proud right now. What did they say? Um, my mom has a framed copy of the New York Times article in her like shrine of like of children accomplishments. But yes, they're both they're both very proud. Uh, and I think they're both very excited that, you know, I found something that I'm I'm passionate about and willing to pursue um, how do, to the fullest extent. How do parents get a kid like you? How does that happen? What did they do? Uh, my parents are wonderful. My dad is is an electrical engineer, he was a first generation college student. And my mom, she's a PA, which I know they're changing from physician's assistant to physician associate, but that's outside the scope of the conversation. But they both were very interested in raising me with a lot of kind of hands-on examples of STEM in general. I grew up playing Legos. I think it's the stereotype for, for engineers in general. But basically any interest that I had growing up, my parents really wanted to make sure that I was able to fulfill it. They worked very hard both before they had me and also as parents. And so I'm just exceptionally grateful to everything they've done for both myself and my siblings. All my siblings are great. They all have their respective interests, but they're all like really good at them because my parents have uh, helped them just get excited about whatever they want to do. So now, Emmanuel, you've grown peas in the fake Martian soil using the Black Soldier fly frass to help improve the nitrogen content. You thought about at one point doing potatoes, but those were going to be harder to measure because they grow underground. We know you did radishes in high school, although not with the insect frass at that time. So what are you thinking about or what do you think others should try to grow next using this process? Yeah. So I definitely think that for any future researchers, I think I've met some interesting uh, grad students, actually A&M, who are exploring uh, multiple generations of wheat growth using uh, regolith, they're, they're not using black soldier fly frass, but they are exploring whether the seeds that survive growth and then produce more, you know, uh, seeds can actually, or more grains can actually uh, continue to propagate multi-generationally. And then I would also be interested in just seeing what other high calorie performing plants like potatoes or corn or tomatoes, or just kind of a lot of the conventional vegetables that we really see. I want to see how those can survive just because we don't really know. I think that'd be very interesting. And then as an engineer, I think one thing I want to take my one place I want to take my work and forgive me if I'm jumping the gun on this question, but as an engineer, I definitely want to take this work and 
build some type of mechanical or aerospace related system that can really take the input from an astronaut or someone working in space or even just some austere location. And it's, it's your black box where you put in your waste on one side and you get your food out on the other side. But I really want to be on the team or just responsible or just whatever project is going to construct that black box that uses the black soldier flies, uses plants, uses poultry or fish, and you can actually get a really good system out just from some very limited uh, inputs. And have you found a team to do that with? Is that something you're thinking about doing for graduate work? Or are you actively looking for a lab that you could build that in? I definitely think that it will be graduate work. I think that my senior year has snuck up on me a lot faster than I've realized. I I started this my freshman year, and now I only have three semesters left. And I still have to spend a couple of those finishing up the paper for this project. But yes, absolutely for graduate school. I definitely think I could see a really awesome team of people working together to build this and really just show off like a proof of concept model. Yeah. Okay, so I'm doing a little math here. Uh, We are coming up on 2024, which is when you're going to graduate, I take it, right? Uh, actually, I will graduate twenty spring of 25. But close, spring of 25. Days. Okay, so spring of 25, yes. and then you go off to graduate school, maybe a master's around 27, 28, maybe a doctor. I don't know. I'm, I'm way projecting here. I'm sure your mother's <laughs> with me on this, Emmanuel. But, you know, you're not that far from the 2030s, which is when NASA is hoping that we'll be orbiting Mars with a human pilot spacecraft. And then maybe close by there, we're actually going to land there. That's tantalizingly close. And so, Emmanuel, I'm going to wave a magic wand here. I'm going to give you the power to put something on that spacecraft, something that the astronauts who are going to land on Mars can take with them onto the planet, put in the ground or set up in a makeshift settlement. What do you want to see on that first landing? Yeah, I definitely think that system that I talked about uh, in a more engineered form, like a more finalized form, that would be absolutely fantastic. I can just see in my in my head... I'm thinking, wow, you know, if we can engineer this system, think about all the food that astronauts don't have to take with them because they're able to recycle more of their nutrients. Oh, if they don't have to take all those consumables, what additional scientific payloads can they take to the surface that otherwise would have been replaced by their food? That's what really excites me. It's like, oh, the limits of what a mission can be can really be expanded if, you know, you just change this one thing. So that's what I would really want to see. Okay, given this timeline, you really got to be working on this like ASAP, buddy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah for sure for, <laughs> definitely and it's interesting there are a lot of uh, there's the NASA Deep Space Food Challenge and I think I would definitely want to hop on one of those teams because they're building some amazing technology that could definitely I could definitely see on a spacecraft over the next 5 to 10 years that's Emmanuel Mendoza he's an undergraduate researcher at Texas A&M University and he recently presented on the potential to use soldier fly larvae to treat simulated Martian soil at the Entomological Society of America Conference. Emmanuel Mendoza, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate you having me on here today. Here at Undisciplined, we love space. And in the space we have left today, we wanted to share with you an original composition from composer Rebecca Baker that, for us, evokes the feelings we get when we think about space. Baker grew up in Colorado and Washington, She's now a student at Utah State University, and this piece comes as a result of a collaboration between Utah Public Radio and students who are studying music theory under the mentorship of Professor Kevin Olson. 
Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 10.30. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Undisciplined is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. You can help support this program too at donate.nprstations.org UPR. Our producer is Nick Porath. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>